Hello and welcome to the Urban Permaculture Podcast. My name's Heather with Hogs and Hens Urban Farm and today's episode is being brought to you by Anchor. Anchor has been generous enough to sponsor this post today and they are our podcasting platform and we love them. Super simple to use. It's an app you can download on your phone. You can also access it from your computer. You can record episodes anywhere at any time, schedule them for later and it's a very interactive and super simple to use platform. Definitely check it out, guys. Hello and welcome to episode eight of the Urban Permaculture Podcast. Today's episode is about integrated pest management. Now, this is a topic that I've actually had quite a few people reach out to me and have asked me to create, and I am super excited to share this information with you. While it may not be the most exciting of subjects, it really is a very, very important uh, subject for planning your garden, which we talked about last week. So today we're going to talk about quite a few different aspects of the integrated pest management system. It's what we do here on our farm. We, um, we do not use uh, synthetic pesticides or herbicides on our farm. We grow organically. Now, that's not to say that we are an organic certified farm because we are not. Uh, becoming organic certified and getting that little seal to put on your produce is actually a quite lengthy process and it's a quite expensive process. But we do not use any synthetic chemicals on our garden. And today we're going to talk about how we are able to accomplish those goals while still having fantastic harvests. So we're going to talk about the the triangle or the uh, pyramid of integrated pest management. And um, you can find a, a photo illustration of that in the show notes on our website, hogsandhensdayton.com, under the uh, Urban Permaculture Podcast tab. Um, But initially, what you're going to want to do is set up some action thresholds. So at what point do you actually action upon a pest? We're going to talk about monitoring and identifying pests, prevention, and control. So with integrated pest management, there are a couple of different uh, schools of thought on options for how you how you organize the, the pyramid. Uh, the pyramid that I choose to use has uh, five levels, and the bottom is a very important tier. So the very bottom of the pyramid is the widest part. So that's going to be the cultural aspects. Now you're thinking, cultural? What's that got to do with anything? By culture, I mean it's your day-to-day activities. It's what you do daily and what you do at the base level of your gardening that's going to set you up for success or failure. So at this level, we're going to be making sure that we monitor for pests. So what I mean by that is before you go out there and start digging around and planting, you know, our first steps that we talked about last week in the planning session are paying attention to your land and taking detailed notes about it. So do you see lines in that soil where maybe moles or voles have been digging or tunneling? Because that's going to tell you that you have a situation that you need to mitigate right away before you start planting or you're just setting yourself up for failure. Um, Another thing you need to make sure you're doing is making sure you're sealing up waste. So a variety of pests thrive in waste products. What I mean by waste products are... 
Are you picking up your pet waste? Um, if your pets are um, using the outdoors as their bathroom, are you picking up that waste and disposing of it? Because if not, that can add bacteria and it can attract flies and other insects to the area. So picking that up regularly and disposing of it properly is going to be important. But also not having buckets with standing water, which is going to... Um, allow stagnation and it's going to allow for mosquitoes to have a breeding ground and nobody wants to sit outside and enjoy a nice picnic surrounded by mosquitoes right so making sure that water sources are either aerated or have a solution like having some fish which will eat the mosquito larvae um, or things like that are going to be important um, as well so sealing up empty buckets or trash things that can have water pooling on them um, where mosquitoes can lay their eggs is going to be super important Seed selection and variety selection is going to be important because at this level, you're choosing varieties that are resistant to pests. Now, that doesn't mean that they are GMO because we do not use GMO seeds on our farm. But what it does mean is that they are selectively bred to be repellent to different types of diseases, such as blight, for example. And then education. So learning about these different pests and training yourself to pay attention to signs of these pests. You know, as a kid, I would see the little pretty white butterflies flittering around in our yard and I thought it was a great thing. Oh, look, they're so pretty. You know, as I've researched, I've learned that those are actually cabbage moths and they leave their eggs on your plants, which then hatch and will chow down and decimate your brassicas in a very, very short time. So seeing those pretty little white butterflies, which are actually cabbage moths fluttering around, is not actually a good thing. It, uh, While it does help them to be able to pollinate and things like that, it does mean that they're leaving their eggs behind and they're going to chow down on your veggies. So paying attention to those things is super, super important. Another thing that um, we're going to talk about is the next tier, and that's the physical tier. So what can you physically do? What are physical barriers or physical prevention measures for these pests? So an important one is something that you can be doing right now. It's the middle of January or the end of January, and it's really not a good time in most areas to be planting. However, one of the garden tools uh, tasks that you should be doing is to take care of your tools. So make sure that you clean and sanitize your tools. Now is a good time to get them good and sharpened if they need to be sharpened. Because if you're cutting vegetables, um, say you are cutting some tomatoes that have been impacted by blight. If you cut down using a pair of pruners, a tomato plant that has blight, and you do not sanitize your shears in between and you cut another plant to trim it, you could be inadvertently introducing blight to those new vegetables that are not impacted by blight. So you are basically transferring disease from one plant to another. Think of it like when you go to a doctor and they put on gloves before they touch you and then they wash their hands and then they go to the next room where they wash their hands, put on gloves and wash their hands when they leave. That's in essence what you're doing is you're isolating the pathogens so that the plants do not transfer those, those illnesses, diseases or pests. 
Sharpening them and making sure that they are really well taken care of in that regard means that you're going to have nice, sharp, crisp edges on your trimmings. If you have frayed edges or, or areas where... Um, like the sap from these plants can seep out, again, you're opening up the ability to spread disease and pests. So this is a really good way for you to help make sure that you're preventing them. Um, as far as pests, you can look at physical methods of removing them, such as physically hand removing them. Um, so if you see cabbage worms on your cabbage plants, physically take them off of your plants and um, you can put them in a cup and feed them to your chickens if you have a flock of backyard chickens or ducks or you can simply seal them in a container and throw them away dispose of them um, I found that a Ziploc bag works really great for this as well although specifically with cabbage moths if you've already got cabbage worms chances are you're not going to be able to hand pick them off tomato hornworms on the other hand are very large and fairly um, easy to pick off. Now they do blend in with the plants because they are the exact same color as the plant. So they're harder to see during the daylight. But a cool trick with these are that if you go out into your garden at night with a black light, they actually glow. Um, so they glow under black light and they're really easy to spot. So you can pick them off then at night. That'll prevent your tomatoes from getting chowed down on and it helps again to uh, supplement your chicken feed because chickens will often eat the tomato hornworms. You can also set up traps. So um, a common one is for slugs, people will put a dish of beer um, a little tray of beer um, because it is said that slugs are attracted to that and they will um, put those on a little pedestal that the uh, slugs try to get to and in essence they drown. So it's a way to trap your uh, predators. Insect netting or screens is a fantastic way to prevent issues. Um, so in our case, uh, cabbage moths were the absolute just decimators of our garden last year and so this year once we plant our plants we are immediately going to be covering them with insect netting um, <clears throat> the earlier you put that on the more effective it becomes because they're going to want to lay their eggs um, on those young tender plants and as they hatch they're going to start chowing down now if your plants are a little bit bigger and more established then they're going to be a little more resilient but um you know, they could have multiple surfaces to have those little tiny eggs on. So the earlier you can get those uh, netted, the better off you're going to be. Now, insect netting is not something that is designed to provide shade to your plants. It's simply going to be a barrier that's going to keep the cabbage moths from laying their eggs on your plants. It's still going to allow sunlight through. It's going to allow rain and irrigation to reach through. Your plants will still be able to breathe, but the flying insects are not going to be able to land on your plants and or leave their eggs behind. Um, seals. So if you have a greenhouse, making sure your greenhouse is well sealed because that's going to prevent animals and uh, critters of all types from getting into your greenhouse because again, you've got tender seedlings in there. And if you've got uh, critters getting in, they're going to chow down on those seedlings that you've worked so hard to grow. And even more simple than that, it's going to be fencing. So depending on where you're at, um, you may need to put up fencing. In our case, we did. We, we had put up a six-foot privacy fence around the entire perimeter of our property. 
And then we added a secondary fence on the inside of our property uh, for our garden area. We have a four foot tall picket fence that we use, which keeps our puppies out of the garden. I say puppies, they're a little over a year old. I mean, they're still puppies, but they're full grown dogs at this point. But keeping them out of the garden is important because they like to get into our garden and they like to sniff around and smell all the different smells that are there from other animals that have tracked through. And they like to then try to dig up our plants. They like to pick tomatoes off of the vine, whether they're green or red, and chase them around and play with them like they were a ball. They've harvested our squashes. <laughs> so we had to put up a fence to keep them out because it's hard and very frustrating to do all of that work to grow these beautiful crops that are getting really close to being ready to harvest. And then you go out and you find your almost ripened butternut squash laying in the middle of the backyard because a dog has gotten to it. Likewise, if your property is in an area where you have a lot of deer, having the fence is going to help keep the deer out. It's also going to help to prevent smaller animals like rabbits and raccoons and possums from getting in. There's not a way to keep them 100% out. No matter how hard you try, they are going to find a way in. Uh, but these are things that you can definitely do. You know, putting up the fence definitely deters them. And it will slow down the number of critters that get through. Next up, we have our biologicals. So that sounds super technical and very scary, right? It's not. What I'm talking about for biologicals are natural enemies. So things like um, you can actually purchase these insects and release them into your garden. Things like lacewings um, and ladybugs and specific types of uh, parasitic mites and parasitic wasps. These types of insects will actually prey on the bad bugs, in essence. Um, the parasitic wasps will actually lay their eggs inside the body of the tomato hornworm, and it will basically eat, the, the larva will eat the parasitic hornwood from the inside out and kill them. Now, bear in mind that these methods are not instant fixes. These are going to help, but they're not going to be an instant fix. If you already have a serious problem with a specific type of pest, you may need to look at other options further up the chart. But parasitic wasps and mites, ladybugs, lacewings, these are all things that you can do to uh, get things going ahead of time. Um, you can also do some companion planting. Now, we're going to talk about companion planting a lot more in next week's episode, but I'm going to use the carrot and onion example right now. So when you plant carrots and onions together, you're doing a couple of things. One, you're making better use of the square footage that you have available because carrots are going to grow deep down into the soil as you eat the taproot of the carrot, right? The orange part or purple or white or yellow or other colors, but you eat the carrot part that's under the ground. And the onions are going to grow right near the surface is where they're really going to be bulbing. And neither of them do you really eat the tops of. Although with onions, you can cut up the tops of the onions and eat them like you would a green onion. But for the most part, you're primarily eating the things in the ground. Onions are going to help prevent, prevent carrot moth. Um, they are a natural repellent of carrot moths. And carrots are naturally a repellent of onion moths. So they're going to help each other by repelling the natural predator of the opposite plant. They don't take up space that the other one needs in order to grow. And so they work out really well and you can densely plant them 
and have a very successful harvest with both. Both of them have similar watering needs as well, which is really important when looking at companion plants. There are tons of companion planting uh, options, and we're going to talk about those in great detail next week. But using these options are a fantastic natural way to repel the specific targeted insects that are trying to go after your plants. You can also do what's called planting a trap crop. And what that means is you're going to plant some crops that are somewhat sacrificial. You're planting them in order to attract the things that are like, I'm going to use nasturtium. So nasturtium does a great job of attracting um, things like pollinators, hoverflies, um, and hoverflies eat aphids. So they are fantastic to have in your garden. They are a trap crop for aphids, so they're going to attract the aphids, and then they're going to attract the hoverflies, and the hoverflies are going to come and eat the aphids before the aphids can reproduce and spread to other crops. And they're also going to attract squash bugs. So if you are having problems with getting your plants to grow because aphids are getting to them, or you have a problem with squash bugs in your squash bed, planting nasturtium nearby but not adjacent, not directly touching your squash beds are going to substantially help you to prevent those squash bugs from ever really becoming much of a problem. And they're going to attract the aphids to them as opposed to your other plants so that they have a readily available food source. Now, nasturtium are super easy to grow. In fact, they actually like crummy soil. They do not like, um, they don't require rather, super nutrient-dense soil they will grow in the absolute worst of the worst soils. As long as there's a little bit of soil biology and a little bit of life to it, they will take off. In fact, they're actually fairly drought resistant. So in an area that you may not be able to get to so easily with your irrigation methods, they're a perfect plant to grow there because they don't require a lot of attention. You simply scatter the seeds, bury them about a eh, half an inch to a quarter of an inch down and lightly water them and just let them take off. They are super quick to grow. Um, they can grow in anywhere from 25 to 45 days, depending on the variety. And you can eat the entire plant. So with nasturtium, you can eat the roots, the stems, the leaves, the seeds. You can eat it all. And uh, we'll be talking about nasturtiums in better detail later. Um, Nasturtium also naturally repels cabbage loopers and white flies. So if you have problems with cabbage loopers, growing nasturtium is going to help you with that. Um, so those are some of the biological ways. Now you can go up the chart a smidge and you'll get to the selective chemical tier. Now, this is when you're going to use microbial biopesticides. This is when you're going to use some of your natural pest repellents. Um, I do say that when you use these things, be careful because just because something is natural doesn't mean that it doesn't have environmental impacts. So, for example, diatomaceous earth. It is a very easy to get product. It is non-toxic to humans, but there are some cautions when using diatomaceous earth. So you can scatter diatomaceous earth on your plants and it is basically ground up itty bitty tiny crustaceans and their shells when dried and pulverized are very sharp. 
and it will slice open the underbellies of these pests, which dries them out because insects don't have skin like humans do. They have an exoskeleton, and when that exoskeleton gets pierced, they dry out and they die. Well, that's great if you have a bug problem, but it's not so great if you're trying to bring in butterflies to your garden and pollinators because it doesn't it, it doesn't say, you know, oh, well, you're a good bug. I'm not going to kill you. It, it is a, a non-discriminant bug killer, in essence. Um, so it can become a problem. Likewise with neem oil. I've seen a lot of people talking about neem oil lately. And yes, neem oil is an organic uh, way to, to use an insecticide. And it does work to, to repel and or kill a lot of pests. But again... In an integrated pest management system, you want to bring in some of those good bugs like ladybugs and parasitic wasps because you want them to naturally go after the bad guys and kill them, right? But if you're killing off the good guys, there's nothing left to fight the bad guys and you're becoming dependent upon those chemicals to get rid of the insects. Um, Those are just a few options. There are many um, microbial biopesticides But those are just a couple of the ones that I have seen in use. Um, I will say with diatomaceous earth, it is also a very messy product to use. And it does have, um, there are differences. There is food grade and garden grade. Um, And it's used a lot in commercial agriculture. Um, It's added to um, animal foods at times to help with parasites in the intestinal tracts and things. Um, But it is a dust. It is basically a crumbled up dust. It is a fine mix between a sand texture and a powder texture. And um, so we had bought a whole bag of that last year in an attempt to get rid of the cabbage moths. We were at, at a desperate level. We had it in the, ho- in the house. And unfortunately, the puppies got a hold of the bag of diatomaceous earth and they ripped a hole in the bag and drug the bag all throughout the first level of our house, shaking their heads as they did so, which covered our entire first floor in a thick level, thick layer of diatomaceous earth. Now, because this is not a powder and it's not a sand, it is crushed up, crushed up crustaceans in essence. It's not so easy to clean up. Um, It seems like it would be. It's not. Um, It will absolutely get into every nook and cranny. It will get into linoleum and create little tiny micro scratches in the linoleum, which then takes the luster and the shine of linoleum down. If you have hardwood floors, it's going to get in between the cracks and crevices of each board. It also will kind of dig itself into the, the wood grain and... It's been months and months and months of us trying to get rid of all the diatomaceous earth that got scattered everywhere. We ended up throwing our couch away. We vacuumed it and vacuumed it and vacuumed it, and we just could not get it all out. In fact, if you sat down on our couch and you had a dark colored um, outfit on, you would have a white mark where your body actually touched the couch. It, it was that bad. Um, so I do say, you know, use it with caution. Also, you should be wearing gloves when you use it because, again, it's, it's an irritant. And even though our skin is tougher than the exoskeleton of an insect, it does still have the potential for irritation. 
And when handling it, as with all chemicals, you should definitely be wearing a mask or a respirator. Um, so diatomaceous earth is something that is um, a powdery, very light substance. So when you're scattering it, it gets into the air. And when that gets into your lungs, it can really irritate your lungs and create teeny weeny little micro tears in the lining of your mouth, throat and lungs, which you definitely don't want. Um, anytime you're using any kind of chemicals, whether synthetic or natural, you should always be wearing, you know, protective gear, make sure you're wearing, you know, gloves and a mask just because, you know, these chemicals are designed to kill or repel insects. And even though you're much larger than an insect, that stuff can absolutely still cause problems. Um, now if you've done all of those things and you still have a bug problem, the absolute last resort option is to use a broad spectrum insecticide. We do not do this on our farm. Um, it is not something that I promote, but it is an option. And that's going to be things like pyrethroids and um, the uh, neonicotinoids. And those are all um, chemicals that are synthetically produced or non-synthetically produced. Um, pyrethrum is actually um, a compound found in chrysanthemums or mums, those pretty fall flowers that you see all over the place. But pyrethroids uh, basically paralyze, paralyze the central nervous system of the insects and it fries their nervous system and kills them. But again, they're broad spectrum. And the problem with broad spectrum is that it casts a wide swath of, of destruction. So if you spray all of these things in your garden to kill the bug that is the problem, you run the risk of, again, killing the good stuff. And that stuff leaves a residue. And so you have the potential for having many years of, of cleaning your soil and, and rebuilding in order to get those pollinators to come back to your area. Because if they've, you know, if they've learned that that's an area where they die, they won't go back to that area. And so that's, that's definitely an issue. Now, another method of integrated pest management is not necessarily companion planting, but um, it is, it's kind of a sidestep off of the pyramid. I suppose it's a little bit of a physical uh, maybe a biological, but these are some plants that you can plant around your property, throughout your food forest, throughout your garden to help repel bugs. Um, citronella. Now, everybody knows citronella in terms of the big smelly candles that you burn to repel mosquitoes, but it's actually a natural plant and it's fairly easy to grow. And you can plant that as a a crop that'll help you prevent mosquitoes in your area, which is definitely a big help. Petunias. Um, a lot of people don't think of petunias as being any kind of benefit other than aesthetically, but they are a fantastic plant at repelling insects. Again, they have a very pungent smell. It's not typically thought of as a, a super pleasant smell, and they will repel insects. Uh, also, they're really fun to plant throughout your garden because they're pretty. And they add a swath of color throughout the garden, which is going to attract your pollinators. And as your pollinators come in to get some pollen from the petunias, they are going to land on your tomatoes and your squashes and other plants and pollinate for you. Lavender. There are a million things I can tell you about lavender and how wonderful it is as a crop. But lavender does a great job at repelling cats. Um, they do not like the smell of lavender, and so they tend to stay away. 
it's a, a fantastic, good smelling plant um, that you can use for a lot of different things, but it will help to repel insects, specifically, again, with the mosquitoes. Rosemary, there are tons of medicinal benefits to growing rosemary in addition to using it in the kitchen. Um, but rosemary does a great job at repelling insects. Um, again, the annoying bugs like flies, mosquitoes, and gnats do not like the smell of rosemary. And so if you plant rosemary around your property, you will have a reduction in the mosquitoes. Basil. Basil is a fantastic plant. We're going to talk about it a lot next week in our companion planting episode, but it does a great job at repelling insects, especially from tomatoes. If you plant basil with your tomatoes, you have set yourself up for success. Lemongrass. Lemongrass is in the citronella family. It's a tall ornamental grass. Now, I will say this. We tried to grow lemongrass last year, and it is very, very hard to grow from seed. It has to have perfect conditions. It is a very finicky little tiny seedling. When it does germinate, it takes a while to germinate. The seeds are tiny and not always easy to come by. Um, that is one of the few plants that I will say that as a beginner gardener, you are probably better off getting that as a start from a nursery or greenhouse. Um, but planting that, it can be perennial depending on your zone. And it'll come back year over year, and the smell is fantastic. It's got a bunch of medicinal purposes too, but it does a great job at repelling mosquitoes. Now, mint. Mint is a tricky one because the thing with mint is it does a great job at repelling rodents. Um, uh, raccoons do not like the smell of mint. Cats are not a fan of mint. Possums do not really care for mint either. And so it will do a great job at repelling some of those furry little critters. The thing with mint that you have to be very careful with is mint is a very, very, very rapid spreading plant and it becomes invasive super easily. So with mint, you need to be careful to grow it in a pot. You do not want to plant mint directly in the ground unless you have an area of your property that you're just trying to get something to grow on and you don't care that it will completely and totally be overcome with mint. Getting rid of mint is very, 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 very hard to do and it's not a fun process. Now, mint can be used in a lot of different recipes. Um, you can use it for um, like a mint chutney to go with your lamb. You can make it into a tea. You can make all kinds of herbal salves with it. I personally like to crush a little bit of it and mix it into my shampoo. It makes my... Um, scalp all nice and tingly and it helps with dandruff prevention so it's a fantastic um, plant to have it's just you have to be really careful with that particular one and of course we've already talked about nasturtium literally every garden under the sun should have nasturtium growing in it it is an annual plant but it does self-seed uh, pretty pretty readily so when you um, leave it go to seed in an area, you can actually eat the seeds. Um, so if you harvest the seeds and you don't let them drop, then you're not going to have them coming back year over year. But if you let them drop, then you can have nasturtium that come back year over year with very little, if any, effort. So that works out fantastic. Those are some of the ways that we currently use to keep the uh, critters out of our property. Um, now... Integrated pest management is, is not the most exciting subject, 
But all of these things are important for keeping in mind when you're planning your garden. Because when you're doing your layouts, you're going to want to make sure that you put some options in for these things. So onions, for example, onions and garlic, they fall into what's called the allium family. And the alliums, um, such as onions and garlic, are plants that are great at repelling burrowing critters. So things like moles and voles. And so when you plant those along the perimeter of your garden and then interplant nasturtium with them, it will help to keep out those burrowing critters because they're going to burrow along and then they're going to start smelling the onion and garlic um, in the soil around those plants and they're going to stop because they're going to think that's what's in that garden and they're not going to want to eat that because they do not like those flavors. They don't eat them naturally and so they're going to not enter the area in theory. Now it's not a foolproof method. It's not something that's going to stop a hundred percent, but I will say that we had no moles or voles in our garden this year and we did plant a lot of onions around the edges. So it's one of the things that you can bear in mind when you're mapping out your garden um, to make sure that you've got those available because it's going to help you to make sure that you know you don't have a problem. Because I really hate to get to that top tier, those broad spectrum insecticides and pesticides and herbicides, because they're they're really harmful to the environment and they really can can do bad things to the garden. Not to mention the fact that do you really want to eat those things? I mean, in our household, it's very important for me that we live. Um, you know, as synthetic, synthetic chemical free as we can. And I say synthetic chemicals because a lot of, a lot of different podcasts that I've listened to and blogs that I've read and, and different articles will refer to anything that is not, that is not fresh from the earth as a chemical. Now, yes, a bottle of Roundup is a chemical, but so is water. I mean, it's, it's hydrogen and oxygen bound together in a molecule to form oxygen, which, or I mean, to form water, which is at the most basic level, a chemical. So to say that chemicals are, are the enemy here is, is incorrect, but synthetic chemicals, um, can definitely be a problem. All of these things are, are methods we use on our garden. And obviously we use some of them more than others because we've already got our garden plotted out and planted. But, you know, from a planning standpoint, as we expand our permaculture food forest, these are all things that we need to bear in mind when planting. You know, I don't want to plant my nasturtiums right in with my brassicas because that's going to attract aphids and it's going to attract squash bugs. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to plant my nasturtium with my squash because that's going to draw these squash bugs in. And the whole idea with planting the nasturtium is to prevent that. Now with these trap crops, when you're planting these, you know, so in our case, we have a perimeter of garlic and nasturtium and onions. Well, I understand that the nasturtiums I plant out there are not probably going to be nasturtiums that I'm able to harvest. They're probably going to be covered with bugs because that's what they're supposed to do. That's what I want them there to do. But nasturtium has a lot of great benefits regardless. They're still going to add a bunch of color because they have beautiful blooms. They, they come in yellows and oranges, reds. I've seen salmon colors. They're, they're beautiful. You can get tall varieties or dwarf varieties, and there's tons of different options with these nasturtium. So I don't plant them in my actual garden beds. I plant them 
near them though so as to attract because what's going to end up happening is like my cabbage moths are going to go to those nasturtium they're going to chomp away and they're going to eat those nasturtium but I would much rather them eat my nasturtium that I can grow again in 25 to 45 days than I would my cabbage which is going to take months of growing to get to a harvestable size and you know broccoli which again takes some time to get it to a harvestable size I really hope you guys stay tuned to next week's episode because we're going to talk a lot more about companion planting. So we talked about onions and carrots today and we talked about basil and tomatoes, but we're going to talk about even more options next week. I definitely encourage you to research some more about integrated pest management um, and check out our show notes because you're going to see a chart that shows you the pyramid I discussed today with the cultural, physical, biological, selective chemical, and broad spectrum um, options for dealing with pests in a garden. And I, rem- I encourage you to listen to last week's episode where we talked about planning and uh, mapping out your garden ahead of time. Make sure you're monitoring for these things um, ahead of time because a little bit of planning ahead is going to save you a lot of frustration in the future. Um, <clears throat> as a side note, one thing I did not mention yet was this. When you are harvesting um, these crops or if you're tearing out a crop that has been infected or ruined by a certain pest, make sure you're disposing of that properly. You don't want to add that to your compost bin because then you're potentially reintroducing those pests in other areas when you spread your compost. So if you have an an area of your garden that is full of powdery mildew or blight or aphids or whatever the case may be, taking those vegetations and adding them to your compost bin is welcoming those diseases and pathogens and insects into your compost bin which is in theory contaminating. So you definitely want to be very aware of that. If you do find yourself dealing with aphids, a super simple solution for getting rid of them is to simply blast them with water. Um, They're pretty easy to knock right off the plants. So if you hit them with a garden hose, good and strong, they will come right off of the plants. Um, So now you know, and if you guys have any questions, please, please leave them below in the comment section. Make sure that you tune in next week for our episode all about companion planting. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll talk to you soon.